Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's March 23rd and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew House Barbie and I'm here as always with Austin Knight. How you doing, Austin? Well, Matt, uh, I'm back in the Bay Area again and believe it or not, it is still oh. raining here. <laughs> are you in are you in uh, SF? I am, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw on Twitter last night, like the what was it, a cyclone bomb or something like that hit and Oh yeah. I like, saw I, I have, like, trees uprooted, glass yeah. coming off the Salesforce Tower. Like, you, you've truly came in like a wrecking ball there, haven't you, uh, Austin? <laughs> to quote the uh, philosopher Miley Cyrus. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> it, are you okay? <laughs> is this, is, is I'm, this... I'm, I'm perfectly fine in, in my, my cozy open space floor plan office. <laughs> Excellent. That's good to yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah, but it is crazy, crazy visuals, crazy visuals yeah. from people that they were sharing on Twitter. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, the, I guess the positive side of this is that the drought has ended. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, be careful what you wish for, I guess, and all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, well, I'm glad that you're safe. Uh, we're also repping a fresh podcast artwork look. It has been mm-hmm. Far too long. I no longer look like a spring chicken on the artwork now uh, <laughs> that we put together in like 2016, 2017. Uh, so that's quite nice. Uh, so we've we've got that going. We've got a lot that we're going to be talking about. Um, unless you lived under a rock, you probably know that yesterday the Fed released its latest rate decision. We're going to dig into that and talk in a bit more detail about what this means for the future and how this can impact crypto and the the wider markets. Um, Going to be talking about the absolutely wild time that's unfolding as we speak, which is the Arbitrum airdrop, uh, which has absorbed far more of my time than I would hope to today, clicking through buttons on my various ledgers. Uh, but we'll we'll dig into that in a little bit. And then, guess what? Coinbase received their Wells notice. So we're going to dig in in more detail on that. All right. Let's jump straight in. So let's talk a little bit about the Fed's latest rate decision. Um, before we kind of dig into like the the change in the, the bank rate, let's talk a little bit around the kind of conditions running up to yesterday's decision. So yesterday, we saw that the UK posted pretty hot inflation numbers, way more than what anyone was anticipating, kind of a bit of a surprise increase where you know January's numbers 9.9% inflation and we were expecting this to kind of come down a little bit because the the general narrative was that that was largely energy 10.4% yesterday's numbers came in for Feb and most concerning was the fact that this was largely being driven by food and drink prices and oh, general like consumables. Um, yeah, so you know, so I think that that is putting. Well, that's the UK. It's clearly the US is going to have its eyes on that. The ECB, the European Central Bank, um, last week 
think it was. Uh, time's a bit blurry right now. Uh, raised rates by 50 basis points. Actually, maybe that was Monday. Um, and that was despite the kind of banking crisis that's been unfolding. People were wondering whether they would stick to their previous line or whether they would deviate. They did not deviate. And the US banking crisis has been a pretty big concern. Um, big rate hikes put more pressure on that, if if that were the case. And I think one of the fears here is that a banking crisis could lead to a credit crisis. We can dig into a little bit more about that. But the, the long and short of this, I think this is what most people are worried about, is bank balance sheets being depleted through the flight of deposits. So people removing their deposits and we're seeing a big consolidation of deposits that are being removed from regional banks into quote unquote safer banks. (laughs) Uh, I I use quotations there. Um, And what happens when you have less capital on your balance sheet, you have less available for lending. And that could have huge knock-on effects for consumers in the mortgage market for businesses trying to get leverage, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened, Austin? What did did the Fed do yesterday? I think somewhat predictably, even though there were, were, uh, you know, some shifting expectations following the SVB collapse and everything like that, the Fed did go forward with raising rates by 25 basis points. Uh, I know there were some calls for 50 basis points a little while back. That got adjusted to 25. Some speculation that there would be no raise. Others were speculating that maybe there could even be a cut. I think that was pretty extreme. Um, (laughs) And, 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 you know, there were some big, big names saying, we're going to get a rate cut. I think the thing that always gets me in in the run up to these big decisions is the institutions that you expect to have the most knowledge come out with the worst takes so many yeah. times. And it leaves me feeling a bit worried. I, I and and maybe it's a little bit of more the fool me because maybe a lot of this is actually trying to become a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Of yes. like you know. Yeah, they're, they're pushing out these predictions. It's putting like pressure where the futures market, then people start betting and trading based on that prediction. And then the Fed gets mm-hmm. in a bit of a bind where they actually can't raise so much. Uh, maybe it's a bit of that, but it is just a little crazy. I it, it seems like the majority of the people that were calling for a rate pause um, seem to be focused mainly on the, the bank kind of uh, uh, crisis and it's largely people from the big banks that have been pushing for this but yeah it's going to be yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what happens in six weeks time at the next kind of rate decision because markets didn't really respond much it seems like it was pretty priced in i think there's about a 10 percent mm-hmm. chance of a rate pause um so it's going to be interesting to see you know what do you think are we done are we done now is this it uh do they push on um, what what do we think is going to influence it? Yeah, well, I, I will say I think you're totally right to be skeptical about the the predictions that are coming, especially from individuals and organizations that have a vested interest in rate cuts happening, uh, mm. or you know the the market effects that that would happen uh, as a result of a prediction like that. I mean, my sort of 
mo here is uh there is the public prediction and then there is <laughs> that's the one that's shared on, on twitter and in the wall street journal and then there is the actual you know real expectation which is uh kept within the walls of those institutions and mm. i mean this is a tale as old as time right influencing markets uh just because you're you know one of the largest banks in the US doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a component of that. So I think you're right on the money there in terms of what this means for the next rate decision in 6 weeks. I know we're hearing um a, a, you know a, again a lot of varying predictions some going as far to say that there would be a, a rate cut or quantitative easing. Personally, I think that at least one further rate hike if not more. Are is likely. Um, the, I agree the statement, with that. I agree with yeah. that for sure. Yeah, I, I I don't think we're at the end of this yet. Uh, the statement that the Fed put out following uh, this latest meeting was, "quote The committee anticipates that some additional policy firming may be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to two percent over time." Uh, this is. Almost identical to the statement that they they put out last time, which um, pointed even more directly at, at rate hikes. But this piece around some additional policy firming and still talking about uh, sufficiently being sufficiently restrictive to return to inflation of two percent over time, um, I, I think that indicates that it pretty squarely on the table that you know we're going to see maybe another twenty five basis point hike. Yeah. Uh, I'd be surprised if they went further than that, just because I think it would cause a little more turbulence than than they'd want. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I will say as well, you know, <clears throat> this just makes complete sense that there would be another rate hike in six weeks' time. I'd even say there's potential if we get some crazy inflation numbers that buck the trend that we've seen. Uh, that which I don't necessarily think is going to happen, I will say, but you know, stranger things have happened. That we may see another rate hike after that, and I, I think when they are with, with everything that they've been doing with increasing the discount window, offering the backstop for banks. Um, while I actually don't sit on the side of this is quantitative easing, um, because I think in, in more importantly, in particular with things like the discount window, like, and with a lot of the backstop quote unquote bailout for the banks, there is duration that's that's baked into that where, you know, they're going to be uh, obviously taking and buying bonds off the balance sheet of a lot of these banks at face value so they don't have to buy them at a discount. But they're also then committing to selling those and wiping them off the Fed balance sheet within one year. So I don't think it's quite the liquidity injection into the market that people are making it out like it's just pure printing $2 trillion in and, and putting that into the market. I don't. I actually really don't agree with that. Um, the, the thing is, though, they are still, you know, going through what what you could argue is some slight level of, of easing. There's certainly some liquidity being pushed in and right. simply bailing out the banks. It, it should really be paired with a rate raise when you think about this from a monetary perspective. And I think anything that's in the, the region of, like I've seen people that are kind of like really adamant that there's going to be rate reductions in September of this year. And like, I may be wrong, but, I just find it really hard to believe that we're going to get into rate reduction territory in this year at all. I'm not, I'm not sure what your take is, Austin. 
Uh, I don't think that we're we're going to see any rate cuts in 2023. Um, the Fed has now hiked its rates by 475 basis points just in the last 12 months. Okay, that's way more mm. than anyone imagined a year ago. Um, I think it's it's a clear signal um, that that quantitative tightening is going to continue on track. Um, and your your point about the, you know the the sort of characterization of the backstops as being a form of quantitative easing. I have to agree with you. And I think that this actually is the new regime for central banks, this sort of mm-hmm. distinction between monetary policy and liquidity support. So what that is to say is that rate hikes and quantitative tightening to fight inflation would be the monetary policy, while also at the same time offering liquidity support to banks to keep them from toppling. And this is something that the ECB and the Bank of England have been doing for a little bit of time now. Now the Fed is doing it. Um, as you mentioned, you know some people are, are calling this uh, principle stepping on the brake with one foot, which would be quantitative tightening and rate hikes, while stepping on the gas with the other foot, which is quantitative easing. Um, Really fun thing to do in a car, not as fun of a thing to do with with an economy. (laughs) Um, But the the thing is that liquidity support of this type isn't really purely quantitative easing. It doesn't have the same effect of quantitative Mm -hmm. easing. Of course, it does have an effect, but... um, An analogy that I saw that I think was maybe a little bit closer to the reality was that it's more like stepping on the brake with one foot while putting an arm around the baby in the passenger seat to keep her from hitting the dashboard. Um, (laughs) And I I know that that characterizes it in like in a little bit more of, of a positive light. But if you think about this holistically, you're still doing something fairly reckless (laughs) by slamming on the brakes, you know, and, uh, yeah, exactly. So, well, I I think one so one thing I wanted to chat to you about actually is someone being in the um the US uh, and a resident and and I think also like both me and you have um some shared like economic and political point of views and also like some some very different ones as well, so it'd be good to chat through. One of the things I think's been an interesting argument around this is like when you get away from the whole is this quantitative easing? Is it not? I like, I don't think it is quantitative easing, but that's kind of to one side. Now, in Europe and in the UK, where typically, like, you know, yes, we have like a capitalist economy, but, you know, a large chunk of what is the bedrock of the, um, I guess, like the structure of our societies inside Europe and the UK, especially places like France, is much more socialist. So the <clears throat> the idea here of like bailing out banks and uh, like nationalization is much more ingrained into our culture. What I think is very interesting here and what I'm seeing a lot, albeit coming a bit more from like the venture capitalist side is, you know, the US is kind of the uh the capitalist example to the world and kind of going through and like not letting some of these banks fail and i'm not actually opining on whether that's going on it i mean it is inherently not a capitalist approach to do what the the fed is doing i'm interested to get kind of your take on where you sit on that piece austin cuz i think it's an interesting argument yeah i i um 
I, I think that there is the 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 principle, uh, and then there is the practice, right? Mm. Um, the 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 U.S. may be one of the more capitalist leaning nations in the world. Uh, in terms of economic freedom, it's I don't think it's even in the top ten. Uh, believe yeah. it or not, you know, uh, there, yeah, Singapore, Hong Kong, historically speaking, um, even parts of of the Nordics, although they are constantly cited as you know sort of uh, so, like a huge, huge welfare state socialist bastions are also very economically free and capitalistic in, in many ways, right? So it's yeah. hard. It's, I, I wouldn't actually characterize the U.S. as being purely capitalistic. I would say it's probably in practice, although in philosophy aspires to be capitalistic, in, pro- in practice is probably more corporatistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and maybe that's where you know some of the the confusion comes here. I yeah. think that if it were to be purely capitalistic, of course um, the banks would need to fail. And then you know where we get there is like an argument around like, well, you know, what is the better outcome? Maybe like short term pain for like long term um, <clears throat> longevity versus. Um, you know, a a version of of the short-term pain in exchange for perhaps longer-term rot and and problems, which you could argue that the U.S. and its currency have kind of been on that that second path for quite some long time. I mean, we've debased the hell out of our currency. I, the... The analogy that I think of a lot of the time with this is that, like, forests in California... Um, and, and in a lot of the Western United States, um, you know, forest fires are a natural uh, process of, of sort of maintaining and, and reinvigorating and cleaning out the forest. And I, I know that they, you know, th- they've gotten a little bit intense. OK, I'm, I'm not uh, downplaying them, but but there is a natural process that is supposed to happen there, which is that a fire will, you know, will rip through an area of a forest that maybe hasn't seen fire for a, a decade plus, um, And it will burn all of the underbrush and uh, also, you know, take out foliage and trees that are weaker. Um, and then that will turn into fertilizer. And then there are species of trees or, you know, uh, aged trees that are aged uh, at a, a much higher number, you know, 100 years plus that will survive that. Um, and they will benefit from the the fertilization that has been brought to the soil by the burning of the underbrush and, and the other foliage. Uh, but also they their bark will harden, right? Mm. Um, and so you could... Uh, you know, you, you could draw comparisons between this and markets in some ways uh, by by not burning the underbrush and, and the weak foliage. Um, or the ecosystem has to support a ton of stuff that, uh, you know, maybe theoretically it, it shouldn't be supporting. It's a it's a weight on the system, but also the the larger entities, the larger trees that that are healthier and have long more uh, potential for longevity um, they're not going to to benefit from the fertilizer that that would be you know brought about in the ecosystem they're not going to be their bark isn't going to be strengthened their their business isn't going to be strengthened so um, I think there's you know pros and cons to this but to from my point of view you know that's that's where I think kind of the the venture capitalists are are coming at this from is like the 
philosophical versus the practical. And mm-hmm. the reality is that, the, you know, in practicality, the U.S., I think, has kind of abandoned the philosophy for, for quite some time. So we find us in this situation where a backstop does probably make sense, even, yep. you know, given the circumstance that we're in, even if it doesn't adhere to the philosophical um, approach that, that, you know, the, 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 the country was, I guess, founded upon. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I've taken from the the US banking crisis, right, is I actually think there are some real silver linings to all of this. And one of those being that actually it seems like in the grand scheme of things, the contagion has been very well controlled. And I think we're seeing a lot of the legislation and regulation that have been put in off the back of the 2008 crisis has actually done a pretty good job of helping support and uh, ensure that banks are operating in a much better way. Now, there are clearly some some additional layers to that, that that need to be built on top of it. And I think we're learning a little bit from this. Um, but by and large, this has been kind of well kept. And considering that, you know, in the background to all of this, we've also seen the... Uh, I don't know if collapse is necessarily the right word, but it's not far off it, of one of the oldest banking institutions in the world, Credit Suisse, um, you know, things have held up pretty well, um, uh, unless you held AT1 bonds uh, in, in Switzerland. But that to one side, you know, things, I think, are under control. I, I get this kind of like feeling right now that, you know, we're probably in a month's time not going to be talking about U.S. regional banks being under max pain duress uh, anymore, arguably within weeks. And it feels like the, in my opinion, at least, the backstops have, have worked well. I'm kind of glad they were paired with a rate hike as much as I would have loved the short term feeding frenzy of probably crypto and equities going through the roof if we had a rate pause. Um, but, you know, it, it feels like we're in a better place uh, now than, to be honest, where I thought we'd be a couple of Saturdays ago when I woke up seeing USDC depegging and SVB collapsing. Yeah. So, you know, we're in, things are in a much better spot than I thought they'd be, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I hope that... Um that continues to be the case. I, I guess that my one fear with this is that, you know, long, this, this could be just kind of kicking the can down the road. Um, it, at least for, isn't, isn't that the job the, of central banks? <laughs> I know, but it's just like, wait. how long can we kick that can? <laughs> well, uh, uh, for, until Jay Powell is no longer there and he passes the can <laughs> on to someone else and they look inside and see, you know, there's a, it's full of worms. And, and I think that's basically what's happened, uh, in, in these continuous cycles. Yeah, you know, I think that is, and I do actually, I I empathize a a little with policymakers, especially at like the central bank level to a certain extent, um, where on one hand, you know, the the fruit, uh, like the, the things that you're doing, negative effects, 
may not necessarily be seen for many years to to come. So there's like some security blanket for for some of them there. But at the same time, like the good work that that you're doing also suffers that that same fate. So you're stuck in this perpetual lag, which I think is one of the most challenging things that we've actually seen really since October of last year, as as we started to enter into like big inflation. And it was like, hey, okay, can we turn off the inflation now? And it's like, well, yeah, we're seeing it in October. It started in January and this is the lag and everything we're doing is this huge lag and you're predicting at both ends and everyone's speculating in and around it. So it is, uh, I mean, it's ultimately a thankless job. Don't, don't get me wrong. And you don't, you don't really uh, know of many central bankers that are looked at as great economists, maybe outside of, um, Mario Draghi, Mario Draghi, the European Central Bank uh, head that was there through the financial crisis of 2008. I think he came out pretty well. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I can't really name many that people people love. <laughs> so it's a it, it's a tricky job. But it feels like at least at least in the US, things are going to get out of their most turbulent phase, barring another black swan. Europe, a little bit different. Um, and I think that the UK, it's getting more and more concerning, um, but um, I think we'll be in a better place soon with on that front. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a, it's, it's an odd incentive structure. I think that the lag is typically more than four years, maybe even more than eight years. So mm -hmm. um, you, you know, when you take that into consideration, you, you think about, okay, well then what would a, um, a politician or a central banker really be, you know, incentivized to do right. Um, <clears throat> Short-term wins, long-term losses maybe would be, you know, the best way yeah. to put it. And I think that that's why, uh, you know, we're seeing the policies that, that we're seeing right now. Um, one thing that I did want to mention, which I thought was really interesting to kind of just back up um, some of the points that, that and predictions that we were making around rate hikes versus rate cuts is that four times per year toward the end of each quarter, the Fed releases its summary of economic projections or its SEP, which includes this infamous thing called the dot plot. Um, mm. The last one was released in December. Uh, and then the latest one was just released now. And um, what that concluded is that there would be one more rate hike and no rate cuts in 2023. In fact, the median projection for the federal funds rate at the end of 2023 remained at the projections from December, which was 5.125%. So that would basically okay. be, yeah, one more rate hike in 2023 to a target range for the federal funds rate from, you know, between five and five and a quarter percent. You'll recall that right now the uh, target is between four and three quarter percent and five percent. So that's a 25 basis point uh, hike. And then there would be no rate cut in 2023, which is also the same as what came out of the December dot plot. But what's interesting about this is that seven of the 18 participants saw a rate of 5.375% or higher at the end of 2023. And four of them saw a rate of 5.625% or higher. Um, mm. So it, it does seem like there is some sentiment that there's potential for, you know, possibly more rate cuts beyond 
just an additional rate cut. That That's where things seem to be leaning right now. Um, with that said, the terminal rate has been raised at each of the SCPs since 2021. This was the first SCP that did not raise the projected peak rate and kept it at 5.125%, which again was the, the projection in December. So um, I, I think that, you know, some of that momentum uh, is is coming out of the the system and, and we're, we're looking at, you know, proje- projections and pr- predictions that um, we're, we're going to, you know, slow down on the rate hikes, balance things out, but probably not have any cuts in 2023. Yep. I, I completely agree. Right. Let's move on from printing money to printing tokens. Let's dive into our next story of the day. The much anticipated Arbitrum airdrop is, I mean, it's happening right now. It it went live a couple of hours ago. And let me tell you something, this has been a roller coaster ride. Pretty much the entire of Arbitrum went down. Uh, it has been chaos. I'm not sure how much you've been following this, Austin, over the past couple <laughs> of hours, but uh, I... I was like, okay, right. I knew that um, I I qualified for the airdrop and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go in and claim and then I'm going to dump the hell out of these things uh, straight away before the before everything tanks. And then I'll reevaluate whether I, I want to jump back into this at any point. But the, um, the whole Arbitrum website went down. Then the RPC went down. So you couldn't even like claim the tokens via their... Uh, via the contract, then like even the block explorer, like Arbiscan, which is the Arbitrum version of like Etherscan, <laughs> completely went down. Like everything went down, and there was like people were trying to like interact. I managed to like claim some tokens through uh, Plutus, which is a, a protocol on Arbitrum, and then I was like, oh great, I've managed to kind of like claim a bunch of these tokens uh, while everyone else is kind of sitting stuck. I'm going to go trade these now on on Uniswap. Uniswap was basically just non-functional. It, it was just like a complete chaos. Couldn't do anything. Gas prices, which for Arbitrum, right, you're talking like the most I think I probably spent is like a cent on gas. And they were like, I was spending as much as like 20 bucks on gas to get things mm. through. So think, like from a multiple perspective, that is huge. Um, yeah. I actually think like considering that Arbitrum is the branded as the scaling solution to Ethereum, this probably isn't exactly how they wanted this whole thing to go down. However, I'd, I'd say it's probably one of the biggest airdrops to ever hit crypto to, to be honest. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about this, right? So what I thought was very interesting is, in fact, actually, before I dig into that, I'll actually dig into, you know, what the criteria was. Um, if you listen to the podcast, you'll be familiar with Arbitrum. I am a big fan of Arbitrum. I love it. Um, I, I I hold a, a bunch of tokens from the Arbitrum ecosystem. We had um, uh, Carol Vong from Treasure, uh, come on and do a really great uh, interview only a few weeks ago, and that was that was great. So you probably heard a little bit about some of uh, Arbitrum, but here's 
here was kind of like the the criteria basically you, you got some various points that um for different tasks so if you'd ever bridged funds over to arbitrum one or arbitrum nova arbitrum nova is like mainly the chain used for their nfts and gaming and stuff if you'd done transactions in two distinct months six nine uh if you'd frequently done transactions uh or interacted with more smart contracts and then i think there was like all the way up to transaction volume of up to 250,000 you got additional stuff and then if you deposited x amount of assets on either arbitrum one or arbitrum nova and basically like i think the most you could get per wallet was something like 10,500 or 10,250 tokens something along those lines um and I had a bunch of wallets that had a few. I didn't get 10,000 in a single wallet. I think the most I got was like 4,000 in one of my wallets, which was really nice because it was an old wallet I'd not used in a long time, actually. Um, but what I found crazy was people have been doing OTC deals on these tokens before the airdrop had even taken place. This past week, people were offering OTC deals of between $1 to $1.50 per token um, where they would drop in via escrow the the amount, and then you would commit to basically sending over the the tokens as soon as the airdrop mm. happened. There was actually like someone span up this um it was Arb dot market this OTC or deals marketplace, and some uh of the the offers were coming in at over two dollars per token. I I'll be the first to admit. I thought this was absolutely insane. I was like, there's no way this token is going to to kind of list for anything more than 50 cent. Well, turns out, actually, it has been. It's been pumping. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it crashed and uh, as every airdrop does. But as I'm right, as I'm looking now, it's sitting at $1.36. Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, maybe those people that were doing the OTC deals actually had some good knowledge. And it's just about as we start, uh, as we're talking, it's about to go uh, and list, uh, or at least there's going to be a BTC market and a USDC market on Binance. So I, my take here is that this is going to, one, pump a ton of tokens in the Arbitrum ecosystem, which I'd quite like, <laughs> selfishly speaking. Um, I think we're already seeing ETH pumping right now. I think ETH is hitting probably a high for the for the year um let's just have a little look where are we uh ethereum yep nearly 1850 um so that'll be i think a high for the year uh with people swapping out of arb this is pretty much all coming from arbitrum i'm pretty certain um and then also btc is approaching twenty nine thousand. so Pretty good times. A lot of trading activity. And I think over the next few hours, um, probably by the time this episode goes out, yeah, there'll probably be some decent price appreciation. So keep this stuff going. All I'll say is, in amongst all of this, please remember that during airdrops, if you're thinking about just like buying ARB tokens, there is a huge amount of sell side uh, liquidity coming in here. A lot of sell orders. There's going to be a lot of volatility. If you're not super tuned in uh, to how airdrops work and you've traded airdrops before, I'd probably say stay on the sidelines. Don't get involved in some of this. There's a ton of scams. Very quick way to lose money. Any like 
Twitter bot that's pinging you saying, hey, claim your airdrop now. It's not legit. The only place to check if you are eligible for the airdrop is arbitrum.foundation. Do not go to any other websites and just and even then be very, very careful um, for scams. I think this is like a a, a prime time for, for scams coming. But yeah, it's wonderful to see the feeding frenzy again. It's been so long. Uh, I, I love to see it. <laughs> it. It just it brings me back to 2021, 2020 DeFi summer. Like it's uh, it's fun. Uh, it's it's silly stuff again. Yeah, a little bit of excitement. <laughs> yes, much, much needed. All right, from the excitement and feeding frenzy of free money, let's jump into the wonderful world of the SEC, our favorite, favorite friends. Coinbase has received a Wells notice from the SEC as of yesterday, and it was all over its staking rewards products. This Wells notice alleges that Coinbase's staking products constitute unregistered securities. It also mentions aspects of Coinbase's exchange and the Coinbase wallet. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with a Wells notice, typically what happens is that um, uh, an entity will receive one of these and then there will be an enforcement action um, that, that happens after that. So they're kind of just, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop at this point. Um Coinbase has been talking about this, and they said that they are, quote, confident they will be able to defend their position in court. Um, Coinbase's leadership is definitely frustrated that the SEC has allowed American investors to participate in crypto for years before, quote, suddenly deciding to pull the rug out. Um, that is some strong language. <laughs> Sadly, is. Yeah. Um, now, you know what's interesting about this is that Coinbase has actually been having conversations with the SEC about regulatory and policy matters for months, and this still came as a surprise to them. They've actually yeah. had meetings with the SEC since July, and that happened after they initiated those conversations by filing a petition with the SEC. Um, and this petition asked that the SEC begin a public rulemaking process to clarify which digital assets it considers to be securities. Yeah, and this is uh, off the back of uh, the, the Kraken situation where we saw them get a Wells notice. And we were talking at the time where we were saying, well, I guess Kraken is an easier target because it's a private company. And, you know, it, as opposed to Coinbase, where the SEC... Um, we'll be talking about uh, impacting individuals here um, and individual investors, whereas Kraken, you know, it's for, in their eyes, oh, a bunch of VCs, you know, like they, they, they care way less about that. They're not a public company. But we assumed at the time that Coinbase were like, a, a kind of cl cleared this all with the SEC. And you, you would have thought that there was a co conversation happening here. It just, it, I find this, actually a little bit surprising in the sense that it just seems like Coinbase have also been kept in the dark as a publicly traded company, even though mm -hmm. they've been saying that they've been trying to kind of have a dialogue around this. And in fairness, Brian Armstrong came out in defense of Kraken at the time uh, of, of that previous one. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a little bizarre, um, but, you know, not surprising with the way the SEC has been operating in the in the world of crypto recently yeah i mean literally on monday coinbase sent a letter to the sec 
asking for rulemaking clarity around staking. And, and obviously, you know, this is somewhat related to just over a month ago, the Kraken fine. Um, and then just the next day, Coinbase was told to expect a call from the SEC on Wednesday. And then during that call, the SEC gave notice that it would be pursuing enforcement action against them. Uh, so, hey, regulation through enforcement strikes yet again. I mean, this is such a bummer because it looks like Coinbase had been trying to engage the SEC for literally months on this exact issue. Uh, mm. They were kept in the dark. Enforcement was taken against Kraken. And then they said, hey, could you please clarify this so that we can operate within the bounds of the law? Uh, and then it was like, oh, actually, we're just going to to take regulatory action against you. Um, <laughs> and that's that's that, the, that's that kind of MO at the moment, isn't it, really? And it's, it's disappointing. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, there is. So Paul Gruel, he's the chief legal officer at Coinbase. He tweeted out that over the past nine months, Coinbase has met with the SEC more than 30 times sharing details of their business to build a path to registration. During that time, the SEC had given basically zero feedback on what to change or how to register. And instead, they just sent them a Wells notice. And I also read that like in Coinbase's uh, IPO filing, they mentioned staking like over 50 times. Like this yeah. has been a, you know, a long established uh, component of the business that they, they've been engaging with regulatory bodies over. And then they're they're facing this uh, you know enforcement action. It's it's I don't know. It's disappointing. Um, apparently, there wasn't really much detail in the Wells notice itself. Coinbase published a blog post that outlined this, titled "We asked the SEC for reasonable crypto rules for Americans. We got legal threats instead." Uh, that's a strongly worded blog. Post. <laughs> um, I love but, that. But you know, Spicy. yeah, uh, it is. It is. I I. I don't like this adversarial relationship um, no. that's being struck up here. Uh, it Brian feels like a zero-sum game, right? It really <laughs> does. I mean, it feels like in some respects, um, you know, a little bit of a silent all-out war uh, mm. where it's like, to, you know, in public, it's like, oh, no, like, you know, we're, we're getting along and uh, we're just trying to, you know, create a framework and, and enforce laws and protect Americans while, you know, kind of like behind the scenes, it's like, uh, we're basically fully trying to destroy each other here. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase has, you know, kind of indicated that he feels that might be the case. He's previously said that if threatened by regulators, he would rather shut down Coinbase's staking rather than, um, censor transactions. So this is kind of, mm. you know, a little bit of a, of a, uh, an indication of a fight to the end. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of reactions in the crypto community, as expected. Um, that is Custodia Bank crypto. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm surprised at this. Crypto Twitter yeah. had things to say? Oh. Uh, yes. Um, Caitlin Long, we've, we've heard from her a lot recently. Yes. She's the CEO Custodia and founder Bank. of Custodia Bank. Yeah. Uh, and she said, quote, it should be crystal clear by now that the Biden administration wants all crypto even the legit parts out of it of it run out of the US. And then she continued to say, see also yesterday's White House economic report, which dunked on all financial in innovation while espousing the stability of traditional banks. Um, so look, that obviously is, you know, that's a very, very strong uh, and, you know, political, uh, politically motivated take right but yeah. i i think that um the the second part of that is like really interesting to me this sort of 
um, juxtaposition of the attacks that are happening on crypto and, you know, it's unsafe and uh, it's not real money and we need to protect American consumers. Well, like, I, you know, saying, oh, and then also the, the traditional banks that are tied in with the government, they're really safe and stable while they're literally failing. <laughs> yeah. While they backstop them as well. Right. You know, yeah. it, it's it, it, it is. I don't know if necessarily ironic, but it's contradictory for sure. And, you know, we were talking a lot about the somewhat controversial reasoning behind the shutdown of Signature Bank as well. Um, it's it's not a good trend that we like to see. Now, I if I have to put my shoe on the other foot and look at this in a balanced way as well and say, okay, look, crypto is not... Uh, coveted itself in glory over the past 18 months like we we can't escape that but i the solution is not a regulatory framework vacuum it is uh that is being ultimately created and enacted through enforcement we need clear guidelines i think it's it's interesting when you look at a lot of the proponents of decentralization and the the leading figures that are truly building value inside the crypto ecosystem um say what you like about brian armstrong right but he's done an enormous amount for for crypto and has been a spokesperson for crypto in pretty much every aspect uh for the longest time now and you know, he's he's kind of saying it's not that we don't want to be regulated. It's quite the opposite. We need mm-hmm. clear guidance. And if we have yes. clear guidance, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with the outcomes of that. And we have to work within that. But in in lieu of that, it just, it, it's so much worse. Uh, and, and the whole like argument of oh, it's, it's going to stifle innovation, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's nonsense. I think uncertainty stifles innovation. Nobody wants to commit and build to something that they think the kind of uh, the, the floor can shift um, from under their feet within a few months. So I think, you know, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm spouting a little bit of like uh, the same broken record that I'm often saying, but it, it just feels like how long do we have to be talking about this lack of guidance for something to actually come to fruition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about stifling innovation, things like this are what stifle Mm -hmm. innovation. An entity that is trying to work with our regulatory bodies getting smacked down unexpectedly, that's what stifles innovation. Uh, And look, let's not forget, Brian Armstrong has been talking about this for way longer than crypto has been in the shit. I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's been talking about concerns o- over uh, regu- regulation through enforcement, and he's been wanting to engage with regulatory bodies well before any of Well the... before they even went public. I, I remember yeah. when we were talking mm-hmm. in the earlier days of the podcast about Brian Armstrong and some of the things he was talking about ahead of Coinbase, like several years before Coinbase went public. Was it 2020 that they actually IPO'd? That- that, that 2019, right. 2020, yeah, somewhere yeah, around there. Yeah, because I remember at least 2018 we were talking about some of this stuff. Um, and I think a lot of it was coming around the time when we were talking about uh, Libra. <laughs> what a throwback. Uh, the the meta um, uh, cryptocurrency that they were kind of like thinking through. And there was a lot of discussion around regulatory uh, or lack thereof regulation, should I say. And, you know, 
Armstrong was always one of the people, uh, along with, in fairness, the likes of Jesse Powell at Kraken and uh, many of the other like big exchanges, um, maybe outside of our good friend Justin Sun. Um, (laughs) But uh, so yeah, this isn't news uh, for for them. They've been they've been consistently beating the drum. Yeah, turns out the IPO was actually in April of 2021. Uh, Felt like it was longer ago than that. I guess we were talking about it for a while. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and, and in fairness, I mean, I say that and that's already two years ago, uh, which mm-hmm. it feels a lot. Uh, it feels a lot closer than that. The year when I I made and lost equal amounts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a what a roller coaster that year was. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a time. We're running out of time. Let's cover off one of the the shining uh, silver linings of of all of this. And that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> The SEC isn't all bad, all right? Uh, they yeah. also filed a lawsuit against Tron founder Justin Sun, one of a, a Finally. of the pod. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, a, a bunch of celebrities, including Jake Paul and, and Lindsay Lohan, for violations related to Tron. Um, yeah, and then, so that that is interesting. And then meanwhile, I, I would love to dig into this at some point, but there are a bunch of bills right now that are being introduced to ban CBDCs, central bank digital currencies in the US. And this is at the federal level and at the state level. I think Ted Cruz sponsored a bill at the federal level. Um, uh, Ron DeSantis is doing it in Florida at the state level. So we're seeing like a lot of pushback um, on CBDCs. And and I only did a bit of reading about this this morning, but is it primarily coming it's, from the Republicans or is the this kind of across parties that we're seeing this? Uh, gosh, I mean, I, I need to look into this more, but right now, like the only names that I saw were Republican. I, I hope okay. that that changes because yeah. I don't want this to become a partisan issue. We, we've talked Definitely. about this, you know, yep. um, but the concerns that were cited were around, um, you know, financial privacy and freedom and, and everything like that, which I feel mm. like everybody should be able to get on board with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so more to come there. Uh, CBDCs, keep an eye on them. Yeah, this is what the you know I think all roads lead to this. This this is where we go, and I and I wonder uh, the, the the pessimist in me uh, or the skeptic more should I say is is the reason for this lack of regulation so that the uh, the U.S. has time to think through what kind of regulation it needs to keep in place or block out of to enable CBDCs to win the fight against decentralized tokens. And (laughs) I think that is maybe a skeptical view, but doesn't seem too far-fetched in the grand scheme of things. But we'll see. We will see. Time will certainly tell. And (laughs) for all of you listening, you know, get ready to be talking about, for us to be talking about CBDCs even more than we already are, because I think that is going to be what later this year we are all talking about. Mm -hmm. But Austin, we've covered a lot. Printing money, printing tokens, Wells Notice. I, uh, I wish everyone all the best in their arbitrum degeneracy that's probably going to be (laughs) taking place over the coming hours and austin as always i'll see you next week see you then matt
The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.